Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Welcome to Justice Thomas's 30-year legacy on the court. Please welcome our host, Jen Mascott, Assistant Professor of Law and Co-Executive Director of the C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at the Antonin Scalia Law School, and John Malcolm, Heritage's Vice President for the Institute of Constitutional Government and Director of the Mee Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Well, I want to welcome you all. Uh, to the Heritage Foundation. On behalf of Heritage and the Gray uh, Center, uh, today has been, it's been a special day, and it is still a special day. We are delighted to be here uh, honoring the 30th anniversary of Justice Thomas's uh, appointment to the Supreme Court as an Associate Justice. We've been fortunate to have Justice Thomas here before. He was our 2016 uh, story lecturer, and we are, are thrilled that he is here uh, with us this evening. Uh, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to my co-host, Jen, and I hope you enjoy uh, the evening's program. Thank you, John. Good evening. The Seaboyden Gray Center is thrilled to host this event with the Heritage Foundation and commemorate the very significant milestone of Justice Thomas's 30 years on the Supreme Court. Justice Thomas is now the longest serving justice currently on the court, and at the young age of 73, if he serves for just seven more years, he will become the longest serving justice in U.S. Supreme Court history. We are kicking off the evening celebration of the Justice's jurisprudence with a very special award presentation by our center's namesake, former Ambassador and White House Counsel C. Boyden Gray. In honor of Justice Thomas's 30 years and his role as one of the leading jurists of the 20th and 21st centuries, this year the Gray Center is awarding for the first time what will become an annual award named after the Justice to honor his ongoing legacy. The Justice Clarence Thomas First Principles Award will be given out each year in October to an individual who has shown exemplary dedication to principled application of the rule of law, humility, and strength of character. The award is inscribed with a quote from Justice Thomas from a 2001 speech titled Be Not Afraid that embodies the justice's approach to life and the law, a warning to never surrender to the understandably attractive impulse towards creative but unwarranted alterations of first principles. Just as Thomas's story, rising from childhood in the segregated South and poverty to a seat on the Supreme Court, is a poignant personification of the American story of liberty and optimism. 
Justice Thomas's life and career is a picture of hope and determination, faith and principled character, rising above significant adversity to engagement and great service and leadership, writing some of the most landmark judicial opinions on originalism of our time. To give out this year's inaugural award in honor of the Justice Thomas, we're going to welcome the center's namesake, C. Boyden Gray, to the stage. Boyden worked in the White House for 12 years, serving as counsel to the Vice President during the Reagan administration, and as White House counsel to President George H.W. Bush, where he was in charge of judicial selection for the administration that nominated Justice Thomas. Among many other roles, Boyne also has served as U.S. Ambassador to the European Union and as a U.S. Special Envoy. Currently, he serves as a founding partner of Boyden Gray and Associates, and he's a key supporter and participant in the work of the Gray Center, founded by now DC Circuit Judge Naomi Rao in 2015, to encourage debate on constitutional and practical questions related to the proper role of administrative agencies within the constitutional separation of powers. So please join me in welcoming Boyden. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. You have no idea what an honor this is for me. You have no idea. And um, I'm overwhelmed by, uh, by, this, by this reception and by the person who is being honored, the two people who are being honored, the first being the justice for his commitment to constitutional originalism and to liberty and to the rule of law and to Judge Silverman who is getting the first First Principles Award. And I've often wondered whether they, they were secretly meeting every day <laughs> over the last 20 or 30 years, because there's a certain resonance. And uh, there are many areas that, 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 that deeply interest me. But one of the ones that gives me the most fun is their shared uh, questions about New York Times versus Sullivan. I will say that. <laughs> Um, I've looked at uh, Judge Silverman's history. I followed it very closely, his career. It's very exciting what he did, very varied. But I've looked in vain for anything that could explain uh, his administrative law expertise prior to his going on the court in 1985. Uh, he did a lot of very important foreign intelligence work. He practiced law in Honolulu, as I think. He served a stint as Deputy uh, Attorney General and Deputy Secretary of Labor. Um, but I don't think those jobs would have, would have uh, trained him. And so I have to fixate, I haven't got time to roast him, uh, uh, about his <laughs> three years as ambassador to um, Yugoslavia. And I'm wondering, no one's ever suggested to me that that was a recommendation for the DC Circuit, let alone a requirement. <laughs> But after thinking about it, and having been an ambassador myself, thinking about it, you know, you, you spend three years in a broken country like that that no longer exists, and it really does concentrate the mind on our own constitution. So, <laughs> so I think that's, that's why you, but before I sit down, and I've talked too much already, I, I think it's important to remember that, that, that the dialogue that they have and are still having isn't all that the Silvermans have done. Uh, Judge Silverman's first wife, who died too young, 
was a colleague of uh, Justice Thomas when he was Citizen Thomas um, at the EEOC. And there they formed a bond uh, that propelled the Silvermans into becoming the greatest supporters and cheerleaders and help helpers uh, for the justice as he moved into the D.C. Circuit, through the D.C. Circuit when they shared time there, and then currently, as we, as we all know. Um, that is something which I think should not go unrecognized. Uh, Trish keeps up the tradition. Larry, I will say this about you. No one has had more to do with Justice Thomas's extraordinary journey than you, except possibly President George H.W. Bush, who nominated him to the, to the Court of Appeals in the Supreme Court, and Senator Jack Danforth, who gave Citizen Thomas his first job in Missouri and became his indispensable backer in the Senate much, much later. So please come up and say some words and let me give you this thing. <laughs> if I could. what he just said was a few words. And there's one word that seemed quite inappropriate, and I didn't realize it, that it was part of the award. It was the word humility. Because <laughs> I've thought about this, and I richly deserve this award. <laughs> But not for the reasons Boyden said. <laughs> Many years ago, as the Reagan administration was ending, Clarence Thomas came to me for career advice. Now, it was a little duplicitous because I had already been on the phone with Boyden recommending him for the Court of Appeals, so I wasn't really nonpartisan about this. But I had to do some real talking because Clarence who had exhibited real leadership, management ability, brains, as chairman of the EEOC, like so many lawyers who get into a management job, senior management job in government, thought he could translate that into the corporate world, which he could. So I had to talk with him for some time about the prospect of being a judge. And I gradually convinced him, and as he said in a television production, the key was, I told him, if you didn't like it, you could leave, it's not slavery. <laughs> when he became a judge, he provided me with an enormous boon. We sat together for only a few times, but the real joy I got came from the fact that I wanted the best chambers in the courthouse overlooking John Marshall Park and Pennsylvania Avenue. The incumbent in that chamber, Spotswood Robinson, was retiring from the court. 
Pat Wald had seniority over me and indicated she wanted that chambers. So I schemed. <laughs> I let the circuit executive know that I wanted to sit next to Clarence so we could consult. <laughs> Pat was horrified. She thought I'd have a bad influence. <laughs> Little did she know that Clarence Thomas would be the most independent-minded jurist we've ever seen. But she, <laughs> but she was apprehensive. And so she withdrew her desire for this wonderful chambers. And I got it. <laughs> now that brings me to the reason why I deserve this award. <laughs> I talked Clarence into being a judge. That has resulted in Clarence Thomas's ultimate role on the Supreme Court, where he has become one of a small handful of the most important justices in American history. And in a long career in government and on the bench, I ruefully realize it's the single most important thing I've ever done. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Judge Silverman and Boyden. We are very grateful, Judge Silverman, that you're representing the Gray Center as the inaugural recipient of the Justice Clarence Thomas First Principles Award. And now, as we move closer to the keynote portion of the evening, we will hear from a man who really needs no introduction, but I will do my best. Don McGann currently leads the Government Regulatory Practice Group at Jones Day, where he's been a partner for many years. He's also previously served as Senate-confirmed FEC commissioner, but he's perhaps best known for his role in serving as the first White House counsel for President Donald Trump. And in that role, Don spearheaded two confirmation processes for Supreme Court justices, for both Justice Gorsuch and Justice Kavanaugh. And as a former Kavanaugh clerk, I can say we're particularly grateful for all of the resolute efforts by both Don and Leader McConnell, whom we'll hear from very soon, in bringing that confirmation process home and across the finish line. That successful process then led a short time later to an increase in the Senate majority, which in turn led to the confirmation of Justice Amy Coney Barrett, whose own confirmation team was led by another principled and talented White House counsel who had a group of associates and deputies, many of whom themselves are former Thomas clerks. So in addition to Don's role in jump-starting multiple Supreme Court confirmation processes, he has also been highly influential in the second wave of the Justice Thomas legacy, which is the judicial selection of many of Justice Thomas's former clerks to the bench. During the Trump administration, at least seven former Thomas clerks were confirmed to various circuit court positions, and another five hold different uh, federal judicial roles. And so Don, we thank you very much for your leadership, we thank you for your service to the country, and we thank you so much for your time tonight in introducing Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell.
certainly has been an impressive, impressive day, and it's truly an honor to be here with you this evening. Before turning to my assigned introductory duties, I want to thank the Heritage Foundation, in particular John Malcolm, uh, for his work. I want to thank Jan Mascott for the kind introduction and the C. Boyden Gray Center at Scalia Law School for their efforts in putting on this event. When you look at the list of established and serious people that have been assembled here throughout the day, it leaves me certain that the media will cover this event the way they cover all serious substantive events, <laughs> which means we're going to be on C-SPAN 3 at 4.52 in the AM. <laughs> you hear there was a movie about Clarence Thomas? I, I didn't think so because we're all watching the Squid Game, apparently. That's not going to be on, on C-SPAN, which is uh, uh, fortunate. On a serious note, it's truly an honor to be among so many of my personal heroes who have inspired and influenced me, including Justice Thomas and, of course, our keynote speaker. I can't mention everyone in the room because this is really a who's who of, of, of all-stars. Judge Leon's staring at me, so I'm going to name check him. Um, <laughs> but I do want to mention Boyden Gray. When I had my turn in the barrel at the other end of Pennsylvania Avenue, that's what we call it around the dinner table. I still called it Boyden's office. And Boyden was the one while in that office that was the, really the prime architect of Justice Thomas's ascension to the Supreme Court. That was 30 years ago. And in case you don't already feel old enough, I was a first year law student during that ordeal and watched every minute. I did not need reading glasses then. <laughs> Under the plain text of the Constitution, the president has the power to nominate and the power to appoint judges. But that power is contingent upon the Senate offering its advice and consent. All presidents certainly take the advice seriously, but it is really the consent that they are most interested in. <laughs> Our keynote speaker has had more than a front row seat in the advice and consent role of the Senate. The Constitution speaks of the Senate, meaning the body as a whole, and not the personal preferences of any one member. But occasionally in history, and rarely in history can one senator's impact be favorably conflated with the constitutional role of the Senate. Our keynote speaker is such a figure. He has always had an eye on the long game. He was born in Alabama and as a boy moved with his family to Georgia and then to Kentucky. He graduated from the University of Louisville with honors. He went to Washington, D.C. to attend the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, where Dr. Martin Luther King delivered his I Have a Dream speech. He interned for a senator. He graduated from the University of Kentucky College of Law, where he was president of the Student Bar Association. He became a lawyer and worked for another senator. Back in Kentucky, he practiced law and he taught political science at the University of Louisville. He served as deputy attorney general under President Ford, serving with the now household legendary names of Bork, Silberman, and Scalia. After a few local political electoral victories, he ran and was elected to the United States Senate in 1984, where he has served with distinction ever since, both as majority leader and on unfortunate occasion, its minority leader. But distinction does not capture the impact he has had not only on the Senate, but on our country. Relevant tonight's, to tonight's proceedings, he has argued before the United States Supreme Court while serving as a senator. He was the lead plaintiff in the seminal case of McConnell versus FEC, a facial challenge to the McCain-Feingold campaign finance legislation, where many of his arguments were eventually adopted by the Supreme Court in subsequent as-applied challenges. There, he focused on the long game. His efforts and sacrifice 
in pursuit of ensuring the protection of liberties enshrined in our First Amendment, including speech, religious liberty, and the right to redress one's grievances, would be more than enough for the history books. But there is more, much, much more, but not too much more. <laughs> he looks at the long game. The only thing longer is my introduction of, of him. Our speaker has been part of dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of judicial confirmations, including 17 Supreme Court nominations, beginning with Justice Rehnquist's elevation to Chief Justice, which, as we know, was coupled with Justice Scalia's confirmation. Not a bad start. And now, and again consistent with his focus on the long game, the recent confirmation of every, more recent confirmation of every current member of our Supreme Court. His role in the three most recent confirmations is well known. But for him, those would not have happened. His courage has been unmatched. After the untimely death of Justice Scalia, our keynote speaker said no to a hasty confirmation. It is too close to an election that will elect a new president. Then after the 2016 election, he led the Senate through not only the confirmations of Neil Gorsuch and later Brett Kavanaugh and Amy Barrett, but ensured a record number of judicial confirmations, including to our critical federal courts of appeal. 30 years ago, Clarence Thomas became a member of the Supreme Court. Our keynote speaker voted in, in favor of that confirmation. Justices hire young law clerks, and Justice Thomas is known to look for certain qualities in those clerks. A very long list of those law clerks are now federal judges. On the circuits, Katzis, Rao, Strauss, Ho, Rushing, Ide, Miller. On the district courts, Packhold, Mizell, Nichols. On the tax court, Toro, and the Armed Forces Court of Appeals, Mags, and Hardy. According to a 2019 article in the Atlantic, Justice Thomas has had more of his former clerks nominated to federal judgeships under President Trump than any other justice past or present. And not to be outdone, Judges Thupar, Bush, Nalbandian, and Walker were, shall we say, recommended to the White House to be judges by our keynote speaker. All of those nominees were confirmed thanks to our keynote speaker. Let me pause on that for a minute, 30 years after the confirmation of Clarence Thomas. These Clarence Thomas law clerks would not be life-tenured federal judges but for a keynote speaker. Talk about the long game. In my lifetime, there has not been a more consequential senator. And in our country's history, well, his place is already secured. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor and privilege to introduce the senator from Kentucky, Mitch McConnell. Don, I deeply appreciate that overly generous introduction, and I'm thrilled uh, to be here tonight. This is a remarkable occasion, and it's an honor to be asked to be a, to be a part of it. I have to thank Don, as I said, for a great introduction and for the marvelous job 
he did of selection. Many of them in the room here today. Um, the confirmation process, as we all know, is uh, challenging these days, to put it mildly. And uh, the only way we were able to prevail, obviously, was to have truly talented, well-qualified nominees. And even with them, uh, as you recall, during the last uh, administration, almost all of these talented men and women were on party-line vote. Party-line vote. This was not a period of collegial confirmations, shall I say. Don was also an outstanding chairman of the Federal Election Commission and ranks right up there with Boyd and Gray, of course, as a terrific White House counsel. Well, I'm here at Second Massachusetts. I want to take a moment to applaud and congratulate Kay Cole James. Thank you for your service. And welcome Kevin Roberts as well. So look, I'd like your indulgence uh, to begin tonight with something that is uh, pretty rare for me and perhaps a little out of character, a moment of personal vulnerability. Like the two men we are honoring this evening, Justice Thomas and Judge Silverman, I'm not known for being easily intimidated. And yet I have to say, delivering a keynote lecture on the legacy of a legal titan before this current crowd of genius lawyers, after a full day of expert discussions, it makes for something of an intimidating assignment. I mean, look at it this way. What could I, Mitch McConnell, possibly know about a notable leader who is parsimonious with his public statements? <laughs> who shuns the performative aspect of public life? And who is viewed as a boogeyman by the radical left? <laughs> what would I know about that? Like all of you, I too graduated from law school. But actually, that's where our paths diverged. <laughs> I've been fortunate to be in the presence of a number of talented lawyers over the years. Um, actually, none more talented than when I was young and in a lowly staff position down at DOJ at the time when Lawrence Silberman was Deputy Attorney General, Robert Bork was a solicitor, and Nino Scalia was head of the Office of Legal Counsel. So for a while, I got invited to the staff meetings. <laughs> you know, for a guy that I wouldn't recommend you go to to write a simple will, there there I was in the presence of all that legal genius and extraordinary humor. And so, Larry, you got me off to a good start. And by the way, ironically, Larry's sister lives in Louisville, Kentucky, been a longtime friend of mine and is part of our football tailgating group. <laughs> so congratulations, Larry, on winning this award. 
A piece of trivia you may not know, I did not, I did produce actually one, one published legal, legal scholarship before I completely went in a different direction. It was way back in 1970. The outlet was the Kentucky Law Journal. And at the wise old age of 28, I put pen to paper and published a lengthy article on the dry, boring subject of how the U.S. Senate should evaluate nominations to the Supreme Court. <laughs> and whether at that time they had become too contentious. So thank God the subject has simmered way down since then. It's just sort of been sort of been smooth sailing since back in 1970. Actually, the linkage between the Senate and the Supreme Court is a fascinating, crucial, and frankly, slightly strange part of our constitutional order. An institution of our federal government that is sacredly non-political and another institution that is entirely and intentionally political come crashing together. During some periods, advice and consent was a perfunctory, almost sleepy process. Other times, senators adopted what we might call a more assertive approach. And in some of these latter cases, the confirmation process becomes kind of a referendum on the very same principles and values that the justices are meant to uphold on the bench. The presumption of innocence, due process of law. We all know these subjects are constantly up for discussion in the court. But what's fascinating and disturbing is the frequency with which those very same principles end up on trial across the street on the Senate floor. I was a freshman senator when the far left ate Robert Bork alive in 1987. I'd come to the Senate with a high-minded, perhaps in retrospect, rather naive view that I'd expressed in that earlier Law Journal article. The Senate should stick to evaluating nominees, competence, and integrity, and let presidents select legal philosophy as they liked. That's what I thought back then. Well, it didn't take long for Ted Kennedy and friends to permanently disabuse me of that rather naive notion. I stood at my freshman's desk in the back row and explained that I'd be happy to play by the Democrats' new rules and make judicial philosophy a salient factor going forward. Let's just say history has a funny way of making people reap what they sow. In 1987, the far left taught the American people they should care a lot about judicial philosophies. In 2013, Harry Reid broke Senate rules to change Senate rules to set the threshold for confirmation at 51. I said at the time, you may be sorry you did this. <laughs> Neither of those moves played out as colleagues intended. Neither did the disgraceful firestorm that would visit upon Justice Thomas and Jenny back in 1991. 
Now, I'm not going to dwell on that episode tonight. There's no reason to. We all know what the people behind the smear campaign revealed, actually, about themselves. But I'll say this. I was inspired then, and I'm still inspired today, by the courage, the resilience, and the faith which Justice Thomas endured those months and emerged with an appetite for service still intact. The very same grit that carried Clarence through Pinpoint and Savannah, the same stubborn faithfulness that led him ultimately to keep faith in both his church and his country, even after they both let him down in ugly ways as a young black man. The same commitment to principle that compelled Clarence to blaze an uncomfortable trail in Washington, disrupting everybody's expectations. All these virtues proved necessary that summer and fall, and all of them were on display. At every step in his journey, Justice Thomas has provided living proof, as a wise man named Myers Anderson liked to say, old man can't is dead. He sure is, and Mr. Anderson's grandson, Clarence helped bury him. You know, it's even more impressive when you remember that his courageous and determined, this courageous and determined person is also famously one of the most affable, genial, and unselfconscious people in all of Washington. In fact, after watching Justice Thomas excel these 30 years, I'm tempted to propose a new standard here tonight. The Senate should only confirm the kinds of men and women who, when their dramatic final confirmation vote is taking place, decide to turn off the TV and take a bath. <laughs> we should only confirm people who are happier tailgating out of an RV than rubbing elbows at cocktail parties. That's a standard I could get behind. Of course, the campaign to intimidate and pressure this justice did not stop, did not stop when the gavel fell. The next year, the still-fuming New York Times sneered him as, quote, the youngest, cruelest justice. The hectoring never lets up. But Justice Thomas does not break or bend or bow. This is a particular quality that I want to focus on. This core value of not blinking, not bending, not allowing his judicial office to be compromised by inappropriate bullying from the political sphere. Because I'm concerned that in our current climate, judges all across America will need to study and internalize this quality of Justice Thomas more than at any other time in living memory. 
radical voices have a problem with Justice Thomas because he limits his job to his job description. It's not about left or right. It's about our constitutional order itself. Every Justice Thomas opinion evinces a clear understanding that while the role of a judge in our constitutional system is significant and essential, that role is not unbounded. The framers did not create these insulated, unaccountable tribunals for judges to act like wannabe legislators and make policy. Trust me, having two legislative chambers is plenty. <laughs> Neither Neither should judges behave like philosopher kings who think they're charged with nudging Americans into line with elite morality. And furthermore, and this is especially important in our current climate, judges must not see themselves as political strategists. They're not tasked with reasoning backwards from abstract impressions about what outcomes the nation supposedly needs or the court's public standing supposedly requires. We need the rule of law, not the rule of polls. The judiciary exists to resolve concrete cases and controversies by examining concrete facts and applying concrete texts. That's why Justice Thomas' unapologetically straightforward approach is so needed. Huge parts of Washington exist to overcomplicate things that are simple but Justice Thomas has a special talent for dispensing with nonsense. Here's one example. By the year 2003, I'd been waging a lengthy political and legal battle against unconstitutional restrictions on the First Amendment that some people call campaign finance reform. <laughs> we took the fight all the way to the Supreme Court in a case called McConnell versus FEC. Unfortunately, I lost. But Justice Thomas' dissent made for one heck of a consolation prize. He simply, fearlessly called it like he saw it. He blasted the unprecedented restrictions on the free exchange of ideas, a heroic defense of the plain text of the First Amendment. Or take his jurisprudence on unborn life. Every time without fail, Justice Thomas writes a separate, concise opinion to cut through the 50-year tangle of made-up tests and shifting standards and calmly reminds everybody that the whole house of cards lacks a constitutional foundation. <laughs> or look at race and equality. I'm a huge fan of my fellow Kentuckian, Justice John Marshall Harlan, the sole dissenter in Plessy versus Ferguson. I would venture that Justice Thomas' jurisprudence displays the clearest, bravest, most straightforwardly colorblind view of race in our Constitution since Harlan himself. He respects the 14th Amendment enough to apply it it was actually written, a prime example of when it takes courage to let straightforward things be actually straightforward. Doing this work, doing the actual job of a judge is important and essential enough. Our judiciary has enough to do without reaching outside the Constitution to grab other powers. 
but radical voices with an agenda to push do not have much patience with this kind of restraint. Today's left is not content to settle for the outcomes that honest textual interpretations can supply. So my friends, storm clouds are gathering on the horizon. The very concept of an independent and insulated judiciary is actually at stake. A year and a half ago, the Democratic leader in the Senate grabbed a microphone on the Supreme Court steps and threatened two justices by name if they did not rule the way that aligned with his views on abortion. Half a year before that, a whole group of Senate Democrats sent the justices an amicus brief that read like a letter out of the Godfather. Senator Whitehouse and his colleagues wrote, and this is a direct quote from a letter to the court. The court is not well, and perhaps the court can heal itself before the public demands it be restructured. End quote. These were sitting United States senators essentially saying, nice independent judiciary you've got there. Sure would be a shame if something happened to it. <laughs> or take this example. This is President Biden's Secretary of State. This week in Ecuador, giving a speech about democracy. I promise I'm not making this up. <laughs> the Biden Secretary of State this week making a speech in Ecuador about democracy. He specifically mentioned undermining the independence of the courts and packing courts as two signs that democracy itself is under attack. Let's hear it for the Biden Secretary of State. <laughs> He obviously hadn't been paying any attention to what's going on in the rest of the administration. <laughs> this was less than a week after the Democrat pseudo-academic Supreme Court Commission tried a laughably transparent move where they temporarily shelved, temporarily shelved the idea of outright court packing in order to make the equally shocking concept of eliminating life tenure appear to be like the moderate option the moderate option. Well, Tony Blinken flies to Latin America to finger wag other nations about pressuring judges while his own boss tries the same trick right here at home. It would be perfect satire if it wasn't so crazy or scary. Again, this is not about conservative policy outcomes versus liberal ones. It runs much deeper. One of our country's two major political movements has decided they're fed up with trying to win the contest of ideas within the institutions the framers left us, and would rather take aim at the institutions themselves. This is the reason why I was so excited to honor Justice Thomas in particular. This is why I'm so encouraged that this new award will bear his name because we need a federal judiciary full of men and women who are as bright as Justice Thomas, as expertly trained as Justice Thomas, but most importantly, most importantly, as committed to total unflinching judicial independence 
as Justice Thomas. An institutionalist as Justice Thomas in the truest sense of that word. The future of our nation needs everybody who serves under Article III to understand something that Justice Thomas knows better than anyone. Triangulating a moving target while bad actors move the goalposts is a game you lose before you even begin. It does not serve the rule of law to let the loudest, angriest voices define the terms of a debate and then try to invent a halfway point. Hostage takers never settle for half a loaf. There's only one valid response to these efforts to bully impartiality out of America's courtrooms. Give them no corner. Pay them no heed. We need jurists, young and old, whose only response to these blustering threats is to redouble their commitment to follow the law wherever it may lead, with no fear or favor. We need a generation of judges who seek the same two things that Justice Thomas says he prayed for as he walked into his very first conference with his eight new colleagues. Both the wisdom to know what's right and the courage to do it. Your tasks may be challenging, I get that, but your oaths demand no less. Your country needs no less. And the good news is that for 30 years and counting, you have had the brightest possible North Star illuminating the path before you. The courage and the fidelity of Justice Clarence Thomas. So, may this happy occasion and this prestigious new award inspire other patriots to follow suit for decades to come. Congratulations to Judge Silberman on this inaugural honor. Justice Thomas, congratulations on 30 years, and thank you. And on behalf of all assembled at the risk of sounding greedy, we'd like 30 more years. <laughs> Justice Thomas, there are no lights on the podium, and now is the time for your rebuttal. Well, thank you, Senator McConnell. Um, the uh, leader is too close to sort of Central or Eastern Europe type thing. <laughs> but um, this has been, this is truly an honor. Uh, I'm not going to go on long. I, you all have had a long day, and, you know, I convince, I tell my clerks often I'm tired of talking about me, so they should talk about me. <laughs> and, the, and I think they have been talking about me, so, oh, my goodness, this, it is so embarrassing. I just, the, um, I, I, but I have to thank you all. Um, 
I thank you for being here this evening. I know you have other things to do. I thank Jen Mascott, whose idea this was, and who's simply delightful, and I, as well as the uh, Gray Center. Uh, I'm sure there's a ton of hard work involved in this and details and convincing people to participate. But I also thank Heritage Foundation for hosting this and all the work that they've done to make this all possible. And of course, I'd like to thank Senator McConnell for not only the work he has done that, uh, that Don spoke of, but just being the gentleman he is and the courage that he has shown um, over the years, and then also for his friendship. Um, the only d difficulties we have is that Louisville's volleyball team walked into Lincoln and swept my Cornhuskers. <laughs> the only salve on that wound is that your coach is from Nebraska. <laughs> so the, um, but I, seriously, I do thank you for all you've done. I also thank my friend, Judge Silberman. Um, Larry understates some of the things he's done. Uh, he did talk me into being a judge, and for that, uh, we will settle later on about that. <laughs> <laughs> I was minding my business. <laughs> the, um, but we have, uh, he's been a very, very good friend, and he was the one who gave me the best advice on being a judge. He said, Clarence, before every case, ask yourself, what is my role in this case as a judge? And that is the simple formula that I still use. I'd like to also thank Ambassador Gray. Um, he, as well as, as Judge Silberman and some others, conspired to get me onto the bench and to orchestrate some of the things that subsequently happened in my life. But at the same time, they were also those who stood to protect me and defend me. And, you know, it was um, Dr. King who said that you don't think so much about the people who are against you, but you do think more about the silence of your friends. Well, I get to see the other side of it. I get to see the courage of my friends. Those are the ones I like to focus on. And um, of course, Judge Silberman, Boyd and Gray, and so many others who are here have been like that. I'd like to thank Don McGann for all of his work and for this evening. Um, you did appoint a lot of my kids. Uh, <laughs> I always tell them, be careful what you ask for. Uh, things happen. But um, they're good kids. And it's kind of interesting to see them on the bench and to see so many of them um, making sure that we continue to have a republic that was promised us. I'd also like to just point out that another one of my colleagues from the DC circuit who's here that I admire greatly, and that is uh, uh, Jim Buckley. Um, <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
what an honorable man. Um, I always think whenever I go in the basement of the D.C. circuit, I look for that red convertible that he always drove. It was always there. It was ubiquitous. See, that's a big word. I learned that from the Roger's thesaurus. <laughs> but at any rate, I, there are so many people here, and I'm not going to go through everybody. There, I know so many people here, and once I get started, it'd be a roll call. I just, there's so much I could say about all that so many of you have done. I, but I appreciate you all. I appreciate pound panelists today and all the work and effort, time you put into this. I appreciate my former clerks. Uh, I love my kids. The, uh, these are my kids. Uh, they spend a year of their lives with me and they never get away. Um, they, I'm a, we're part of each other's lives. The ups, the downs, the challenges, the difficulties, the joys, they're, they're mine and I love being a part of their lives, as does my wife <laughs> and Stephanie Coleman. <laughs> and we just had a big re another one of our one or two or three year reunions in West Virginia with 300 people. Oh, what a blast. Then we have started taking our RV, the ones who don't show up, we visit their houses. <laughs> And their parents. Oh, yeah. what a hoot that is. Um, the, um, but I, we love those kids, and we love being a part of their lives. And my fellow judges, so many of whom are here, I, um, they are just a delight. So they're heroes of mine, and once I start calling names, I'm going to leave somebody out, so I'm not going to call their names, but they know who they are. I just delight in knowing them and admire them so much and attempt to emulate them. And I thank them for participating today. I have to admit, I'm a little embarrassed by all of this. This is, I am a 100% introvert, and this is very, very challenging for me. But at the same time, I am profoundly and eternally grateful. Um, beyond all measure for you all and the fact that you would be here to do what you're doing today, the fact that Leader McConnell would be here, the fact that Judge Silberman, Borden Gray, my friends Kay and Charles uh, James, who were among my prayer partners uh, 30 years ago and who are just wonderful and were very supportive in a very difficult time. Um, I could not have endured through the years without Almighty God's graces, the love of my bride, Virginia, and, <laughs> and of course, she is the rock of my life, and I could not have done this without the courage of so many including countless people I did not know and still have never met. They were all angels in a very, very dark time. To the extent that there are suggestions that I deserve some credit for these years, I respectfully demur. demur. Uh, 30 years makes one stop and look back 
and reflect more with gratitude than with a sense of accomplishment. Any credit belongs first to President Bush for appointing me and sticking by me when others would have cut and run. Senator Jack Danforth, who stood tall when, it was needed, when he was needed and who was a friend and a counselor and a father when he needed to be. I appreciate the senators who voted for me, all 52 of them. <laughs> hey, that's, all you need is 50. <laughs> uh, I, I also appreciate those who worked tirelessly to get me confirmed, and I mean tirelessly, especially, especially Mark Paoletta. Mark has never retired. He has never stopped. I have given up on, I don't even know what these dates are that I'm supposed to be celebrating. I have to ask Mark. Uh, he remembers them all. Mark is my archivist, uh, and he's my brother. Um, I'd like to thank, again, my law clerks. Um, over 30 years plus of law clerks, including the D.C. Circuit. Uh, these are not employees. These, are, these kids are family. I love these, these young people. I love being, some of them now are a little older than, I can't call them kids anymore. <laughs> but I love these kids. And so many courageous friends who stood up when the group standing up was tough. So many um, who've helped me over the years, who've helped me stabilize after some beatings and who were there comfort, friends who gave us a place to heal when we couldn't go any place, particularly in the 90s, friends who were then themselves attacked, and yet they didn't run for cover and did not change. I'd like to thank also my great colleagues, particularly on that early court, especially my buddy Nino. On I'm not going to get in it too much because I get choked up, but Nino and I had not met before I got to the court. We met, and I think we found out that even though we were from very different backgrounds, we thought alike, and we trusted each other. And for all more than a quarter of a century, we worked together without seeing each other all that much. He would ask me things. He was really funny. Um, he would ask me to go hunting with him. And he thought it was odd that someone from rural Georgia would not go hunting. <laughs> and I said, Nino, it's really odd that someone from urban New York and New Jersey will go hunting. <laughs> I said, last I checked, I left nothing in the woods. <laughs> So you expect me to risk rattlesnake bites, moccasin bites, ticks, fleas, etc., to kill some unassuming bird with a big gun? No. <laughs> uh, he invited me to uh, go to the Kennedy Center with him because he likes. He said, "Clarence, you like 
classical music? I said, oh, I sure do. He said, come to the Kennedy Center. I said, oh, yeah, but I don't like people who like classical music. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gosh. I, it is different without him. He is the one person I truly miss at the court, but I've had wonderful, wonderful colleagues there. Without the people who've helped me over the years and been there, without you all who are here, without God's grace, without my wonderful bride who's always there, I would not be standing here, and I know that. Without my grandparents, without the nuns we went to New Jersey to celebrate this past weekend, I would not be here. There are so many of you who are the but-for causation of my being here. So I thank you. I thank all of you from the bottom of my heart. And I thank you all for this wonderful, wonderful evening. It is a joy, an absolute joy, to be able to stand here and celebrate this moment, not because of me, but because of you all and what we're trying to defend in this great country. Thank you very much.